Okay, um, and, and Wayne, good to see you, good to see you, Wayne. So, um, my name is Joe Davis, I'm the pastor here at Grace Life, we're continuing with our series called Surviving in Egypt, the Life of Joseph. For those of you that haven't been here, Egypt is really just a metaphor for the world. So this is really about surviving in the world, and we're taking lessons we learned from the life of Joseph and applying them to us today to learn how to survive in Egypt. And so this is week 15, and I've entitled this message, Salt and Light in Egypt. Originally, I had titled the sermon, Climate Change in Egypt, because this is the moment where it goes from seven years of plenty to seven years of famine, and the climate changes. But I felt that was too politically um, risque. So I decided to back off and go with a more biblical, scriptural title. So recently, Laura and I had the privilege of being in the UK. Uh, for those of you from Bradenton, that's United Kingdom. <laughs> just, just joking. It's just a joke, people. <clears throat> so we were there for a couple of weeks, and we saw some really amazing things. But I want to tell you about the most stirring thing that I saw in the United Kingdom. It's something that, uh, believe it or not, is uh, something that very few people actually visit. And it's sad. It was Winston Churchill's grave. And the reason that nobody visits it is not because they don't love Winston Churchill. Of course, he's a revered, beloved historical figure. But it's really in the middle of nowhere. It's 10 or 15 miles off the main highway. You go up this small country road. It weaves a little bit in some hills. And then you got to stop and pull off on the side of this country road. There's really a small median, so it's not like big tour buses go. We were in like a little van. So you get out of the bus, and then you got to walk about 30 yards up this very thin gravel road up a hill that, you know, maybe a Prius could get up, but not really anything else. <laughs> you walk up this gravel hill, and at the top of the hill, there is an old church, and it looks, kind of, it's really old, like built in like the 1300s. Uh, and so it's, I don't know if there's any services going on. It didn't look like it. There's no parking lot. And in the front is a graveyard. And in the back is more graveyards, and almost all of them are run down, except for one section in the back that's very well taken care of, and it's Winston Churchill with his wife and some family members. And there's, when we went there, the only people that were there were the four or five people in our van. That was it. So we got up there, and, and we were looking at Winston Churchill's grave, and I just started thinking, I love history, and I love the story of Winston Churchill uh, I think the most important man of the 20th century, frankly, in so many ways, saving d uh, democracy in Europe. <clears throat> this incredibly flawed yet brilliant man with all he did in, in, in uh, the fight against uh, uh, Hitler and the Nazis. And then as I'm up there looking at the grave, I look I, you know, right behind me. There's a hill and it goes down into a plateau where there's a small school, like an elementary school or a primary school. And while I was at the grave thinking about history and Winston Churchill and and how he's like a, a hero to me in many respects, you hear the kids playing in the background. You know, there's kind of running around and laughing and playing. And I thought to myself, they have no idea that the reason they're able to do that in a free country is because of this incredible man with this incredible courage, Winston Churchill. So I began to think about that. What if Winston Churchill never existed? How different, how worse off would the world be today without him and what he contributed to civil, civilization? And I started thinking a little bit more. 
What if tomorrow the church suddenly stopped? What if the church stopped being the church? No more church, no more work of God in the hearts of people, no more serving, no more missionaries, no more proclaiming the gospel, no serving people, no uh, being sacrificial and loving and caring for other people, no more philanthropy from the church, nothing like that's happening. Now, there are some bad things that would probably stop too, but for the most part, the church is definitely a net positive in the world. What if tomorrow there was no more church? No more people that God was transforming and working through in the lives of others. What would be the consequences of everyone living on earth if there was, starting tomorrow, no more God's people? So let's do Genesis chapter 1, verses 46 through 57 is our passage today. And picking up in the story of Joseph... Uh, this is after Joseph has, has foretold the dream to Pharaoh about the seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, and Pharaoh has put Joseph in charge of all of it. Make sure we survive the famine. We're putting the hands, we're putting the future of our nation, our country, and frankly, the whole civilized world, right? It was the most prolific empire in human history. We're putting all of that in your hands. And here's the story. So Joseph was 30 years old, so young. He was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in cities. And he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it before, because it could not be measured. He had stored up so much grain that it could not even be counted anymore. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, before them to him, or bore them to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said it would. And there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe all over the earth. Talk about climate change. That's what's going on here. And God has put Joseph in a position to bless the whole world. So like we do at Grace Life, each passage has three specific applications. <clears throat> the historical application, what about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? And then we look at the theological or the spiritual. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? And then only then can you really understand the personal or devotional. What about me? What am I supposed to do and why and how do I do it? I want to talk about the history of this passage. I want to talk about a distinctive witness. There is clear evidence all of Egypt recognized that Joseph had a unique, powerful, strong connection to his God in every area of his life. 
Of course, when he was a slave and even when he was in prison, he was recognized as being unique because he was put in charge of the house he was a slave in and then he was put in charge of the prison he was a prisoner in. <coughs> Excuse me. So his life demonstrated God's favor and blessing no matter what his circumstances. And it was undeniable to people. People saw it. In a land that had no idea who his God was, he was recognized as having a special connection to his God. Whether he was a slave or a prisoner, all could see God's hand on him. And that was when he was struggling, but now they see it clearly in his success. And I wanna show some things that people knew about him. First of all, remember the story that he has given a wife who is a daughter of the high priest of the God of the sun. Her name is Aseneth. Her name means she who belongs to Neith, which is an Egyptian goddess. She is named after and named as property of a false god. <coughs> Excuse me. Obviously, she's a highly respected woman. She's very well educated, and she agrees to marry this Hebrew this influential, accomplished woman from Egyptian aristocracy was now the wife of a faithful, God-worshipping man, and everybody in the country knew it. Can you imagine the impact on her and in turn on all of those she met? It had to be significant, right? You are a woman who's named after a, a god. Your dad is the priest of the highest, most important god in our pantheon of gods, and you are married to Joseph. Now, some would say this is a pagan wife, and God forbid that kind of thing for his people. Don't marry people who don't worship your same God. That was one of the rules. But the good thing is our God is sovereign over salvation and faith. So there are some stories about Aseneth, and she is actually kind of a legend of being a proselyte. A proselyte is somebody who was not Jewish born, but becomes Jewish in their worship. And he writes kind of like a narrative, a story. <coughs> he was a Jewish philosopher who lived in Egypt in the first century AD, and he wrote a story called Aseneth's Life and Confession, or Life and Prayer. It's a story about how she comes to be a worshiper of Jehovah. Now, we can't know for sure, but it certainly seems to make sense when you consider it in the grand picture over what was going to happen the next 14 years, right? So Joseph makes this prophecy to Pharaoh. Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything, gives him this very important wife. Now she's living with David. That's her husband. And she bears two sons during the years of plenty. He names them basically after his God. And she agrees with that. I'm, she's in with that. Then she sees all the prophecies come true, and then she sees her husband being a beast when it comes to getting the country and the world ready for this famine. How could she not see all of this going on in Joseph's life and not say, wow, his God is real, and he is really connected? <clears throat> I can't imagine that she was not a part of, God, of Joseph's faith at some point. So that's Joseph's wife. Then we have Joseph's kids. Manasseh and Ephraim, their names prove that Joseph has continued to be aware of the Lord's presence with him throughout all of his struggles in Egypt. To think that his wife, raised to worship in the pantheon of Egypt, consents to the naming of her kids after Joseph's God. The name Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardship 
and all my father's house. His very name is a testament to what God has done in helping him get over his brother selling him into slavery. Then his second son, Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. <clears throat> Anytime Joseph introduced his boys to anybody in Egypt, it was a reminder of his God's faithfulness. Oh yes, this is my son, named after my God, who helped me forget all my hardship when my brother sold me into slavery. Oh, this is my other son, my younger son, Ephraim. He is named after my God who has made me fruitful here in this land where I was afflicted and suffered here in Egypt. Whenever someone spoke their names, they were speaking about Joseph's God. They were giving praise to his God and probably didn't even realize it. So that's Joseph's wife, Joseph's kids. I want to talk about Joseph's work. <clears throat> this was the best suited man in all the kingdom to get the work done. And he does get to work. He gathers tons of food, later used to survive the famine. Then suddenly, as predicted, Egypt experiences catastrophic famine. Not only does Joseph, who is being used by God, serve Egypt well, the whole known world is suffering from this famine and everybody is turning to and benefiting from the work of this God follower. In fact, Egypt's grain stores not only fed Egypt, but everyone. They were all dependent upon Egypt and Joseph for relief. So with that in mind, what was Joseph's impact? Impact. People knew who Joseph's God was. There was no question. As a matter of fact, the first time he met Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, hey, I hear you're good at dreams. And Joseph says, no, my God is good at dreams, and he'll tell you. <clears throat> His life was a consistent constant, repetitive reminder to everyone that knew him that his life was about God. His life was a tool God used to inform the greatest empire about his presence, his glory, and his power. He, Joseph, became salt and light in Egypt. It's pretty amazing. Each time they saw him, they benefited from his work. They had to think, man, that God of Joseph really did some amazing stuff for us. <clears throat> Even if we don't understand it or worship this God, it's really worked out well to have Joseph with us. Man, Joseph's God is better than ours. That's exactly what Pharaoh was communicating when he said, hey, Priest of the God of the Son, your daughter's going to marry this Hebrew. But she might become a Hebrew, so tough luck. <laughs> What's your God done for us? Joseph's God saving us from disaster. So that's the history. Let's talk about the spiritual. What about salt and light? <clears throat> what does it mean for Joseph to have this life be a tool for God to inform this empire of glory and power? He was salt and light. What does it mean? It's about how God's children are to impact Egypt or the world. Matthew 5, 13 to 14, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. This whole passage that Jesus talks about is about impact. 
But the two main ingredients of our impact is salt and light. What does this mean? I think I have a way of explaining to you what salt and light is so that you'll never forget, at least I hope. First thing I want you to see is salt is our work. When he says, if the salt loses its savor, it's not good for anything. Good for anything is a metaphor, a relation to usefulness. So it says, you are the most useful thing on the earth. And if you lose your usefulness, usefulness, you're not worthy, you're not usable. And so the idea of if it loses its savor, it's not good for anything, it gives us a direct understanding of being the opposite of that, which is, you are useful. You are important. So salt has to do with our work. It's obvious the impact that Joseph's work had on Egypt. A faithful man serving relentlessly saves the whole country. And when God's children work, like those redeemed should, our impact can be tremendous, just like it was with Joseph. I love Psalm 71, 16. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. As God gives us these incredible things to do, these opportunities, it is a reminder to all of Egypt, to all the world, who we are, who we serve, and how they can benefit from it. Yet God not only provides the ability to do the work like he did with Joseph, an incredibly gifted man, he doesn't just do that, he also provides the circumstances and the opportunities. My favorite verse, you guys know this, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, verse 10 says, For we are his work, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in or trip over, the language means. And so the idea of being salt is we are useful. We are practical. We are doing things. It's not that we're just like a metaphor for salt. It is we are doing work. And it is work that God has given us the ability to do. And he's given us the opportunity and the circumstances to do this work. This is the glorious part of the salt component. God gives us the abilities and the sovereign circumstances. More on this later. But I want to talk about the light. The light is our words. When you look at the idea of light in the darkness all throughout Scripture, it always seems to be connected to the idea of truth. Like in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And a matter of fact, in, in, in the book of John, John 1, Jesus is called the light of the word of God. It being it was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So we see the word being used as a light and we see the word related to Jesus. So it's very clear. Jesus says, I am the living word. It means the light is truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the light of the world. It means that Jesus brings enlightenment to the world. So combined with our usefulness and our truth, the salt and light, we become an incredible source of impact. Every time Joseph was asked, dude, how did you know? Who is this God of yours? What do you think Joseph's response was? How did you know the famine was coming? Well, my God is light. And Joseph said with his words and his son's name that he knew that his accomplishments were God's work and not his. Each time they remembered the famine, even after it was done, and how God's child was the blessing that helped them escape it, 
all they can think of, man, Joseph has been salt and light. The combination of Joseph's God's given talent and his life experiences and his gift of faith made him the only person in all of Egypt that could be the salt and light to Pharaoh that he needed. It's incredible what God does with this man. So let's talk about the personal side of this now. Egypt needs us. Now, I struggled with this all week. Matter of fact, I was struggling with it till about an hour and a half before church because I want to make sure that it doesn't come across the wrong way. Um, and that is with the idea of arrogance, because that's not what I mean. But Joseph is a preview of Jesus and his church in that how we see that Joseph was salt and light in Egypt. Jesus and his church are salt and light today. But the problem is we get so distracted by surviving in Egypt, we lose sight of how much Egypt actually needs us to stay connected to our Savior. And we begin to think about our salvation and our faith as something that we need to survive Egypt. Well, yeah, but that's not the point of our salvation. The point of our salvation is not just to help us survive Egypt. The point of our salvation is to make us salt and light so that Egypt can be blessed by our salvation. But we get so caught up in our selfish salvation that we stop being salt and light. And our role in Egypt is so crucial. So what exactly is this role? How important are we? This is my social media stuff this week. Whether the world likes it or not, the world has little trouble recognizing when God's children are faithful. Now, the world will be very quick to point out when we aren't. They will. They'll be quick to point it out. But even if they don't admit it, they know when they are being benefited and blessed by God's children, when they're obedient, sacrificial, compassionate, caring, loving, non-judgmental, proclaiming the message of mercy and love and truth and grace. So in my introduction, I posed the hypothetical, what if the church stopped doing everything it does tomorrow? You know, the Grace Life Food Pantry feeds about 1,500 people a month now. What if we just stopped? Grace Life Recovery, what if it just stopped? The stuff we do for the children, the Day for Hope coming up. What if all that, all churches that do anything like that, all of a sudden, one week just said, you know what? We're done. How would that change the world and all that live in it? All the missionaries doing all the work. And they're not just preaching, they're doing medical work, they're helping build things, they're doing a lot of stuff serving. What if everything the church did worldwide, from Australia to San Francisco, the long way around, I mean, not the short way. <laughs> what if everything just stopped? How would that change the world? Even those that don't even embrace our heavenly dad. Here's what I can tell you, without Joseph... Egypt and, frankly, the known world would have faced catastrophe. And just like Joseph, in today's world, in Egypt today, we are his conduits for salt, which is our work of compassion and mercy and light when we point to truth and grace and hope and redemption. And just like Joseph, Egypt, the world, knows it needs God's children even if they don't want to admit it. 
Look, we're flawed people. We're not perfect. That's what makes it all the more amazing. So the first thing I want to talk about is how Egypt needs our salt and light. It's not our pious religious work. That's not what it needs. It doesn't need another cathedral. It doesn't need another pipe organ. It needs us to be salt in how we do business. How we work for an employer. Joseph wasn't a pastor or a priest. He was storing grain. That seems pretty unspiritual. <laughs> Yet it saved the world. It's how we create art. Write music. How we cook food. Build houses. Raise our children. No matter what your job is, your work needs to be a product worthy of people who have been redeemed and transformed because Egypt desperately needs God's children to do good work. And as that salt brings them in, it becomes savory, and they begin to see the benefits of the work of Christians in the world. As that salt brings them in, it is our light that points Egypt to Jesus, the light of the world. You add in the truth that God gives us to share when people are drawn to us because of our work and how we live. We become active, working lives, displaying the joy of redemption and transformation in undeniable ways to all those who come into contact with us. Egypt needs our salt and light. I don't know what your job is, but starting tomorrow, you better recognize Egypt needs you to do a really good job at it. Better than anyone else. Because when Christians are lazy, it's a horrible testimony. You know what else Egypt needs? It needs our faithfulness. See, you understand, it's not us that accomplishes this idea of being salt and light. It is our connection to Jesus that transforms us into people that Egypt needs. Our work and words, our salt and light, when connected to Jesus, provides a testimony for God's truth to a world that is thirsty for it. And we must stay connected to our Savior just as Joseph did, no matter what Egypt may bring us. Because it's funny, right? Egypt needs us to be faithful to our Jesus, even as it fights to pull us away from that. Egypt is saying, turn your back on this Jesus. And at the same time, Egypt reaps benefits when we don't. It's a constant struggle. And Joseph faced it every day of his life. Egypt wanted to destroy his faith, but Egypt at the same time needed him to be faithful or else they would have faced absolute destruction. You know what else Egypt needs? It needs our unity. See, we make a mistake when we think about this from an individual perspective. We need to be more like Joseph. No, you're not Joseph. Now, Joseph made a huge impact, as Jesus did individually, but it's changed now. What we do is make our impact collectively. We don't strive to be like Joseph. We strive to be connected to the God who made Joseph. We strive to be connected to the God who's created the church. In John 17, 22 to 23, here's the way Jesus says it's going to work from now on. The, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. 
us, that they may be one, unified, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This is how Jesus says it's going to work. They are going to be one, one unified collective force of salt and light. Why? So when they live and when they do their work and when they speak the truth, the world will know that I love them just as you have loved me. Isn't that awesome? I think the best way to summarize this deep, and look, this is kind of complicated. I understand I'm in the weeds a little bit with this salt and light today. But I think the best way to summarize this deep, intense concept is how Paul describes it in Ephesians 3, verse 10 and 11. So that through the church, us, the manifold wisdom, truth, light of God might now be made known, enlightenment, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the high places, not just heaven, but high places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This was God's plan from the beginning to create his church so that it, us, we could be just like Joseph and be salt and light in Egypt, even while Egypt is fighting us every step of the way. They need us to be faithful and unified. Grace life. Egypt needs us. They don't need us because we are better than them. We are not. We are just like them. We're all sinners. Imperfect. Flawed. Helpless. We all need to be redeemed and transformed by Heavenly Dad. And it is only that work in Christ that redeemed us, that made us the ability to be salt and light. We're not any better. Uh, we're Christians, so you need us. That's not the point. Hey, Egypt, we are you. Let me tell you about my God who saved Egypt. We have become salt and light, good works and good truth. Why? Because in our business, in our labor, in our child rearing, in our creativity, in everything we do, in our speaking of truth and all of that, we need to bless the world just as Joseph did. Because church, I'll tell you, life in Egypt is hard not just for God's people. It's hard for everyone. And if God's chosen, transformed people don't step up, who will? Dad, make us salt and light. Give us the opportunities and the abilities to impact our community in humility and unity and in power, and in truth. Not in arrogance, but in humble service. Give us the work and the words that you want us to do and say that Egypt desperately needs, even if they don't want to admit it.